Well, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Tonight is going to be two whole chapters of Ezra, Ezra 5 and 6. And because of this, we're not going to have a New Testament reading. They're not too long, though. I think you can handle it. We ended last time on a cliffhanger, as you remember, with the work on the temple ceasing uh, because of the opposition of the surrounding people of the land around Jerusalem. We didn't like that the temple was being built, at least without their help. Um, And we're going to continue as we turn the corner at the beginning of chapter 5. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please bless us now as we read your word and as it is preached among us, Lord. Accompany the reading and preaching of your word with the power of the Holy Spirit. So these would not be mere words, but living and active words uh, to transform us, to awaken faith, convict, bring us to repentance, and help us to grow in Christ. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. All right, Ezra 5 and 6. Now, the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, 
Go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written. A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done. With all diligence. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai, and their associates did, with all diligence, what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 
and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Amen. You may be seated. I wanted to start by thinking about another story, not far from here in the Bible, uh, right after Nehemiah, in the book of Esther. In the story of Esther, set a little time after the book of Ezra, um, and that story, I've always enjoyed the part where uh, this man Haman, who's kind of the bad guy in that book, uh, has just built these great gallows where he uh, is wanting to hang Mordecai, execute him. And uh, Mordecai is, is a Jew. And so off Haman goes to try to talk the king into letting him do this, uh, letting him execute Mordecai on these gallows. Well, when he gets there, before he gets a chance to ask his question, the king asks him a question. He says, oh, Haman, I'm so glad you've come in. I wanted to ask you, What shall be done for the man the king delights to honor? Well, Haman hears that and he thinks, well, he must be talking about me. The king must be wanting to honor me. And so he feels very flattered and he tells the thing, well, I have some ideas actually. Um, You could dress him in some of your royal robes and you could uh, maybe let him ride one of your personal royal horses. And, oh, I know you could have some high-ranking official parade him around town saying, thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. That would be awesome. That would really honor somebody. Of course, Haman thinks all this is going to be done for him, except that the king says, those are great ideas, Haman. Just what I was looking for. That will do the trick. Now, here's what I want you to do, Haman. Go out, find Mordecai, <laughs> put him on one of my horses, clothe him with one of my robes, and parade him around the city for me, because you're, you're a high-ranking enough official uh, to, to, to do this. Um, so what Haman, of course, didn't know was that the night before, the king had been unable to sleep, and so he had gotten somebody to read from the royal chronicles to him to help him fall asleep. And he perked up when he heard this fellow named Mordecai once had um, prevented a conspiracy, basically saved the king's life by discovering a conspiracy against him, but nothing had ever been done uh, to honor him. And so... The next day, in the very act of trying to get Mordecai killed, Haman accidentally stumbles into becoming the very one who uh, has to parade Mordecai around the city in honor. Just a devastating, humiliating turn of events. 
for this fellow Haman. But also, what an evidence of the providential care of God for Mordecai. You think, what is that little episode telling us about God? And it's something very similar, I think, to what we're going to see tonight in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. So look at these two chapters uh, in three parts tonight. They're going to be a little out of proportion in terms of the sections won't be the same size, but that's okay. The first one, stirred by the word. Second will be the tables turned, um, which is the bulk of the middle section from verse 3 all the way across the chapter division. Uh, And then finally, the joy of worship, beginning with uh, verse 14 down to the end of chapter 6. So stirred by the word, the tables turned, and the joy of worship. All right. So beginning at the beginning of chapter 5, we, sh- we should not underestimate here the very powerful sense of fear, keeping the people of Jerusalem frozen, just stripped of the will to continue building the temple after they've been confronted by these leaders of the surrounding people groups. Uh, last time we read that the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now works out to a period of about 10 years or so uh, where no progress was being made on the construction of the temple. It's just ground to a halt. The work has completely stalled. Uh, I would suggest it wasn't just fear, though. It wasn't just fear. Fear was what stopped them. I'm not sure it was fear that kept them stopped, though. I think it was more what you might describe as inertia. Inertia. Um, And I don't want to steal too much thunder here from our upcoming series on Haggai. Uh, But for now, let's just say, partly based on what Haggai um, prophesies about, building the temple was hard, and it was expensive, and there were many, many other things that the people of Jerusalem and the other returned exiles could spend their time on instead. Uh, For example, getting their own houses built and and set up the way they wanted them. Uh, Settling in to life back in the land. There was a lot to do to to reset up their civilization in the promised land. That takes work, too, and Um, apparently from Haggai, there was a sense where those kind of pressing concerns of daily life were taking away the people's attention from the temple. After a while, they just kind of got used to not working on the temple. It felt normal to them. And so what was holding them back anymore wasn't really an external threat, the threat of violence. It was really internal. It was that their hearts were preoccupied with other things. There was just, again, this inertia. Once they had stopped out of fear, it was not obvious, it was not automatic that they would start again even after that outside threat subsided. An object at rest will tend to stay at rest, right? It's Newton's first law of motion, unless, what? unless it is acted on by an outside force. 
Okay, and this is why God acts on them with an outside force. The prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. This is why God sends them these prophets. Um, and by the way, this is where it becomes obvious why we're covering Ezra chapters 1 through 6 as a preparation for our series on the, the two prophetic books named for these two men, Haggai and Zechariah. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel and Jeshua arose, and they started rebuilding the house of God. We ask the question, what is the cure for spiritual inertia? What is God's provision for us in order to overcome our natural sluggishness, our natural distractedness, our natural reluctance to step out in faith and do what God has called us to do? And I'll tell you, it is the prophetic word. It is the word of God. What makes the difference here for the people of Israel? It's that God sends the people his word through his prophets. That is what God's people need. We need the word of God, not just to fill our minds with information about God. We need God's word to stir us up to action, to move us, to motivate us, to do things that do not come naturally to us, frankly, that we don't naturally want to do. But see, God's word is living and active. This morning, the sermon text from Romans 1 was about uh, what we call general revelation, that revelation of God in nature. And so when we read Psalm 19, we mainly focused on the first part about the heavens declaring the glory of God. But I love the way that psalm goes on to talk about God's written word, how it revives the soul, how it rejoices the heart, and how by God's words his servants are warned and made wise. And this is why preaching is such a big part of the life of the church. It is God's way of stirring up his people to action by his word, to stirring us up to energetic work and love and fellowship and service in service to the spiritual temple building that he is constructing now, which is the church talked about that before. It's the way the New Testament describes us. We are that temple that God that is under construction now by the power of God. And how is he building? He's building it through his people by the power of his word. And I think this is such a great picture then here in Ezra chapter 5 of what it can look like for God's people together to hear and to listen and to respond with enthusiasm to the word of God, calling them back into action once more unto the breach, like Henry V says in the play. Once more. Now, it doesn't always happen this way in Bible history with Israel, right? So much of um, Bible history, the history of Israel, is about people hearing the prophetic word and resisting it, refusing to listen. Uh, bucking against that prophetic word. But that's what makes this passage so refreshing and so joyous. There are these signs that things are operating as they should for once in Israel. And yes, there is there was this lapse, this lapse of 10 years or so, which is not trivial. But when God's prophetic word comes to the people, this time they listen and they obey. 
I've quoted before that wonderful verse from the song of Deborah in the book of Judges, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. That is a picture of God's people operating the way they're designed to operate. Now, that does not mean that the opposition goes away or that that path of obedience suddenly just becomes easy and painless. What it means, rather, is that the people are now willing to step out in faith and obey even though there is danger and opposition. You don't get the sense that uh, Tatanai here, this new character, is, is quite as vicious, maybe, uh, in his opposition to the temple building as the uh, adversaries of Judah and Benjamin from chapter 4 were last time. But still, if you think about just the, the great divide that this book is presenting to us between the people of God and their opponents, well, Tatanai is clearly on that side of things. He's on the wrong side of that divide. He's basically asking, who gave you the right to do this? He's questioning their right to build the temple. Of course, the ultimate answer to that is, well, the Lord did. The Lord gave us this land in the first place, and it's the Lord who's commanded us to build here. Notice also the, the personal scrutiny that Tatanai brings to bear on the, the individuals involved in the temple building, not just the people as a whole. Who's responsible for this? I want to I write your names down so I can report you to Darius. I'll just note in passing here that the church... church doesn't just need people who are, who are willing to be Christians as long as they can do it kind of in the background of culture, without standing out, without anybody noticing. The church needs people who are willing to stand up and be counted as the servants of Christ, to confess him before men, whatever the cost. Be counted as those belonging to Christ and carrying out his mission in a world that doesn't like that mission and who will not like them. But they belong to Jesus. They're not ashamed to say so. Now, Tatnai's letter here is, is, is pretty tame compared with um, the letter that's previewed back in chapter 4. But clearly, the intent here is to seek legal grounds for putting a stop to the temple. That's the outcome, outcome that Tat and I wants. He wants the temple building to stop. But he's not going to get that outcome uh, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, he's going to start out kind of tied up in this legal process. And as long as he's waiting for a response, well, the, the people in Jerusalem are saying, well, until somebody tells us not to, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. We're going to keep obeying the Lord. We're going to keep building the temple and so there's a long period of time while they're waiting for a response from Darius. Construction just goes on. The Lord's will is being done. But then the other reason, the ultimate reason, Tatanai is not going to succeed is that, frankly, the facts are on Israel's side. And they always have been. In fact, even 10 years ago, Judah's neighbors didn't have any right legally to do what they did when they made the temple work stop. It was just a show of force and... The people of Jerusalem just crumbled under it. 
even though they actually had the legal right to be building this temple, and now they are standing on that right by the grace of God. Um, What the king finds when he goes and researches this, he finds the original decree of Cyrus authorizing this temple project in the first place. It's kind of like that story in Mordecai. In fact, I think it's a, a striking parallel. It's when the king has people go and look up the royal records. What do they find? They find this information that vindicates God's people and that leads the king to arrange for their protection and blessing. See this repeated pattern taking place. And so Darius writes back to Tatna and he says, keep away, leave them alone. Let the work on, the, on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God in its sight. Let them do their thing. And so hoping to interrupt and delay the rebuilding of the temple, Tatanai instead achieves the opposite. He awakens, reawakens the emperor's interest in seeing this thing through and making sure that the decree of his predecessor gets carried out. And that's not all. The tables turn on Tatanai here um, in another way uh, that's even more, you might say, embarrassing for him says, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Remember, this book began with that echo of the, of the Exodus. Remember where the people of Egypt, at the very beginning of Israel's history, the people of Egypt showered the Uh, departing Israelites with wealth so that they could build a tabernacle. The the Lord was gathering the wealth of the nations in for the good of his people and the establishment of his worship in the promised land. The same thing happened again with the return in the first place from captivity by the decree of Cyrus. And now the same thing is happening yet again. The Lord is taking even the opposition to the temple and he is turning it by his almighty power to serve his purpose. And these very people who tried to put a stop to the building are now the very people who are going to be required by the emperor to fund that building directly out of their own pocket as their share of the imperial taxes. It's just remarkable. So it's basically saying, instead of sending your taxes to the Persian capital, just skip that step, send them to Jerusalem instead. I want you to think about this in a little bit broader way. Zoom out even further. Think about what's the symbolic uh, kind of impact of this. Do you see what's happening symbolically as these taxes are redirected from the Persian emperor to Jerusalem instead? What's happening here is there's a sense where the Lord himself is getting tribute from the nations around Jerusalem. Why? Because who is the ultimate king of the nations here? Is it King Darius on his Persian throne? No. No, it's not. Who is the king above all kings? Who is the Lord of lords? It is the Lord, the God of Israel, the king of all the earth. And he is now collecting tribute from Tatanai and his associates. It's beautiful. I love the way in verse 14. It's the Lord who's listed first. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. Oh, and of course, by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. But 
those decrees only happened because this was God's decree. The king above all of those other kings whose authority trumps those of Cyrus, Darius, or Artaxerxes. Now, I didn't want to steal Haggai's thunder. I don't mind stealing Zechariah's as much because it'll be some months yet before we get to Zechariah chapter 14, the very end of the book, last chapter of Zechariah. Listen to what Zechariah says, one of these two prophets, right? About a future day when to Jerusalem, he says, the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold and silver and garments in great abundance. And just before that, earlier in the chapter, he says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's the goal of all history. That's the ultimate destiny of Israel. That is being, I would argue, prefigured in a partial way here. As the wealth of Tahanai is being turned to serve the construction of the temple for the worship of God. When what he was trying to do was to prevent the temple from being built. Why the difference? Well, it's because the Lord is the king. The Lord is the king of Israel and of all the earth. How fitting, then, that this whole story arc concludes, then, in the restoration of the worship of God, at last, in the completed and now fully functioning temple. Um, And in particular, if we just focus on one thing from this description of the restored worship, one thing that stands out as a theme is joy. This is joyful Worship, verse 16, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. You notice how God centered that is. This is about what God has done for them, not what they've achieved in finally getting the temple built, not, oh, how great Cyrus was doing all this. For them. This is about what the Lord has done for them, the king of kings turning the heart of this particular king to help them. Their debt of gratitude is not ultimately to Darius. It is ultimately to the Lord. And this worship, then, is their joyful response. I want you to notice here how very careful these people are to order that worship According to the word of God, it says, And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the law, sorry, in the book of Moses. Notice that, that orderliness, that careful attention to detail, that earnest conformity to God's word in the way they go about his worship. That does not compete with or or somehow take away from the joy of these worship celebrations. No, it is precisely what makes that joy possible. It is because they have ordered their worship according to God's word. That is why they are able to have this joyous experience of worship. It's why they are able to enter into it joyfully and wholeheartedly. 
with that confidence they're worshiping God the way that God intended. Notice also, this is important in verse 21. The Passover was eaten, it says, by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. You know what that means? It very likely means that there were non-Jews, Gentiles, who had essentially become Israelites, identifying themselves with this covenant community. This is quite different from what we saw in chapter 4, those hangers-on offering to help build the temple when really, of course, what they were trying to do is just co-opt it, integrate it into their existing pagan worldview, adding the Lord to their pantheon as one God among many. But these people are different. This is a different thing altogether. These people have entered wholeheartedly, without reservation, into the community of Israel, and they have said, like Ruth, your God is our God, your people It's our people. That's why they're able to keep the Passover as provision was made for in the law of Moses from the very beginning. See, this is an example on a small scale of this restored Israel beginning to fulfill its mission as a light to the nations. God told Abraham, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, there's still a lot of conflict with the nations. This is not the, the full fulfillment. This is not the ultimate destiny of God's plan, but as a preview of it, this is an example of the wealth of the nations is streaming in, even from their enemies, but it's not just the wealth of the nations. In some small way here, the nations themselves are streaming in and coming to Jerusalem, just like the prophets said they would, saying, we want to be a part of this. Okay, so what can we learn from these two chapters then, thinking about our own time and place. Well, first, again, we're, the first thing is very basic. We're giving, being given a picture here of what it looks like for God's people to be stirred by the word, moved by the word of God that has the power to overcome our natural inertia. Move us to do the work, to carry out the mission that we've been given by our Savior Jesus, to engage in that labor of building his kingdom, temple, the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace that he provides. See, we need the prophetic word of Scripture to stir us up, to fill our hearts with a holy zeal, to pursue with energy the work that Jesus has given us to do, not not to kind of hang back in fear, timid, because of the opponents of the gospel and what they might do to us on the one hand, We're also not supposed to stagnate because we're just too distracted by everything else going on in our lives to give attention to that bigger picture that Christ has made us part of as his temple. It's the most important thing. Second application. We can also be reassured by this passage, comforted, encouraged, that the opposition of God's enemies is no obstacle to God accomplishing his purposes. That God is able to take the opposition of his 
opponents and the churches. And he's able to turn that energy to the church's good and his own glory. So we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be overawed by the power of culture or politics or the great big institutions of our day that are so often so diametrically opposed to Christ's kingdom and Christ's message. When you see the Lord here taking Tatanai's inquiry and turning the tables on him completely so that he ends up having to pay for the temple that he was trying to quash, that is just the beginning of what the Lord is able to do. After all, where do you see that tables-turning power of God in the best possible way? It is absolutely on the cross. We've talked about this so many times. The enemies of Christ in all of their rage, nailing him, into the cro- nailing him to the cross and thinking that they've won. But through that very act of evil of those enemies, what was the Lord doing? He was saving us. He was saving us in that very act. He was turning the tables on the serpent. He was crushing his head even as he struck up against the heels of the Messiah. And so, finally, when we see this joy, this joy of Israel's worship in this passage, how much more, how much more for us should our worship be filled with joy when we look back on everything that God has done for us in Christ? even through the efforts of our enemy to resist him. You know, some people sometimes get the wrong impression that because our worship is serious, serious, because it's weighty, because it's reverent, because we take care to order it according to God's instructions, that therefore it must also be somehow kind of dull and uninteresting and lifeless. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. It is true, to our chagrin, we should be convicted about this, that sometimes we are dull. Sometimes we are uninterested and not very lively or joyful in our worship of God. But that is because in those moments we are not perceiving with the eyes of faith wonder and the beauty of the gospel as we ought to. And so what do we do? Well, we, we repent. We confess it. We admit it to God he, as though he didn't know it already. And we pray. We pray that God's word would stir up our hearts afresh. And that the Holy Spirit would fill us with that joy of beholding in the Word of God what Jesus has done for us and celebrating it together in the way that He has designed. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for the way that you turned the efforts of your enemies against them, accomplishing your plan 
through their efforts to the contrary. It's amazing to see you displayed here for us as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that you have that same sovereign authority now and you've just shown it all the more gloriously since this time in Israel's history and you are still showing it today. Our God, we ask that you would please, by your power, overcome the inertia of our hearts, overcome our fears, and move us, stir us by your word to serve you, carry out the mission that Christ has given to us. We ask you would help us not to be afraid of the opponents of the gospel, but to have great confidence in your almighty power to turn them to your will. And we ask that you would fill our worship with joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.